Alex, I don't want to believe it, but it's Monday. It is. Tragedy, right? Yeah. Back for another morning show here on Bomb in the AM. How you doing, Patrick? Uh, I actually, it was wonderful this weekend. It, really? Uh, it, the spring weather is here in Chicago, finally in mid to late April. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, spring finally sprung a little bit here as well, though it's the version of spring where it's nice and sunny, but it's still like 58 degrees and windy, so not exactly. No, no I, I went to hang out with some family yesterday, as, as many folks did, and uh, it was like 78. I thought I might get a sunburn, and someone was like, should I go get like suntan lotion? Like, you know, I want everyone to be safe, and I said no. I want to get this sunburn. I want it to be a badge of pride because I want that sunburn because I've been inside for way too long the last couple of months, and I'm going to get this, and I'm not going to complain about it. This face right now. That's how I feel about you having better weather than me right now. Well, that's generally how I feel about you, which is why I brought someone else into the mix. We uh, are finally getting back. Totally to fair guests. response. <laughs> <laughs> having guests back on the Monday show. Uh, we are joined uh, by uh, Vlambius Rami Ismail, who uh, you might uh, remember from uh, the GDC couch, uh, who we had on, and we had a, a big, extended, interesting conversation uh, about free-to-play and, and some other uh, businessy stuff in the gaming world. So thanks for joining us, Rami. Hey there. Uh, thanks for having me. Rami, who is now back in the Netherlands, as, as the joke goes. <laughs> Yeah, actually, for the first time in a long time. Uh, that doesn't happen all that often. But, um, yeah, the weather here is uh, quite depressing. It is um, It is also not the AM here in the Netherlands. <laughs> right. Um, there are clouds. It is probably, and this is Celsius, it's probably like 16 degrees Celsius, which is cold. What, what does that translate into in American temperatures? Because those are the only ones I understand. <laughs> I only do the the, the Celsius ones. I, it's one of okay. those things. Even though I travel so much, I still haven't gotten around to understanding Fahrenheit all that well. All I know is that zero degrees is a random value in Celsius, and 100 degrees is the body temperature of a horse Okay. in Celsius. Look, well, as, as Americans, we like to keep it as confusing as possible for everyone else and irrational as possible for everyone else, so... Uh, a great success. I am impressed. <laughs> yeah. uh, I have absolutely no clue how it works. Um, let's put it this way. I would not be surprised if it starts raining within the next 15 minutes. Okay. All right, so we have a perfect encapsulation of what the weather is around, around Rami's place. Yeah. All right. So... The, the reason you have a website is RamiInTheNetherlands.com is because you do travel a lot. You were, we were chatting a little bit before the show. You were, uh, you were just in Ireland uh, because they invited you to come uh, talk out there. You, occasionally, you make games as well, but it seems like you spend a lot of time going out, uh, talking at conferences, talking to developers. What, can you describe a little bit about like, what's the, what the motivation behind that? Like, what are you off yeah. doing most of the time? So I, I have two websites actually. Israel in the Netherlands was a little joke that started because my mother would always ask me where I was, um, and I, I sort of got annoyed at always having to explain <laughs> where I was. So instead, I just um, instead I just made a website that keeps track of where I am, and now nobody asks me where I am anymore. So that's great. Um, and I also have did Rami get random checked, which actually has a full history of my flights. Which, uh, which is pretty nice. That's the first time I've been logging my flights. And man, I do fly a lot. It's kind of crazy. No, so I am one half of Lambert, 
I do the um, the business and uh, the development, which is not the same as doing the business development. It's a completely different thing. <laughs> I do um, I do pretty much most of the things that aren't the actual design and the prototyping of our games. So uh, JW at Flamber, the other half, he he designs the games. He comes up with the ideas, and then we argue about that for a few hours, a few days, a few weeks, and then we make video games. Um, and then some at some point during Flamber, it turned out that somebody needed to do the business mm. and needed to make sure that we... <laughs> so just, we well, I'll put, you put your hand up and it was just, oops, well, Rami's it. it. It was more of a, if JW would do it, we would live in a cardboard box and be dead by now. So um, I offered to do it because I really don't want to be dead and in a cardboard box. Um, <laughs> it turns out that I had a... I had a I have sort of an affinity for that. Uh, I'm a programmer by trade. I like coding. I like optimizing, optimizing problems. And it turns out that doing the business of a company is really, really similar to programming. You optimize problems. Um, so I ended up being being that guy in the company, and um, that's sort of that's sort of what I do. And then part of that was go to events. And um, the interesting thing about that is that I really, really like talking to other developers and helping them out with, with things they are dealing with. Um, so I started going to more and more conferences and giving talks at conferences and talking to communities and indie developers around the world. And that just sort of also became my thing. So now I do do a lot of things at once. Uh, my programming moved from being in an office to being in airplanes and in hotels. <laughs> uh, without exaggeration, that is actually the only place where I can program nowadays. Um, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, my life is kind of crazy. I have no, I have, I have literally no idea how this works, and I'm just sort of going along with the flow of what my life looks like at the moment, and it's it's going well. Um, the biggest... well, you, you mentioned that you know when we were discussing where you were last in Ireland that it's important to you to go around to smaller gaming communities and sort of encourage them to sort of, you know find a way to stand up and and figure out a, a way to be a community. Yeah, yeah, I think I mean one of the most exciting thing about indie games for me or about it, about the gaming industry at the moment in, in general is that there is such a potential for our medium to be interesting and new and novel and creative besides what is you know traditional um and one of the ways i truly believe we can do that is by just having more perspectives in terms of creators having more diversity having more perspective having more types of people creating games um i'm actually half egyptian uh, i'm half dutch half egyptian and um this past game developers conference was the very first time that i saw arabic scripture in a GDC presentation without it being on the walls of the bad guys. Right. Um, and that was such, it was such an eye-opening moment um, for me to, to realize that the people making games right now are generally focused in a few areas of the world. Um, and having, having new emergent territories, new places where people are starting to make games and starting to form communities is is extremely exciting to me because I just believe it will make our mediums all all that much better. Um, so what I do is I wait for a community to grow big enough that they that they have the ability to invite me over, basically. 
Um, I don't really have speaking fees. A lot of people do speaking fees. They don't have to pay anything. Um, if they can get me a place to sleep and, and fly me to a place, that's generally okay for me. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, then I go talk there about, you know, the community and game development and the things that they will run into because usually those, usually those communities are really, really strictly uh, focused on the creation of games. And that's good. Like, that's good because that allows them to sort of establish their own voice. But then, you know, if you want to be part of the larger community, you always need to you need to go to events or you need to organize your own events. You need to you need to have a community. You need to help each other out. You need to sort of stand up and be a community. Um, and that's sort of what I what I try and convince them of. Um, I don't want to go too early because they end up directing a community. And that's mm-hmm. terrifying because I want them to be their own thing. Um and if you kind of go too late, communities might have fallen apart already. So there's like this crucial little... What, you like, you're like Star Trek? Like you won't go to planets like too early in their development so you won't interfere with them? <laughs> yeah, actually, that's kind of true. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's one of those things where it's really terrifying to know that, you know, that um, the presence of somebody from an existing community can have such a profound impact on a community. I've seen that before. I mean... Uh, when I decided to go to Ireland last moment, the amount of people that came to the meetup like tripled or something. Um, it's it's crazy to realize, but to to a lot of small communities, developers from established developers are a big deal, like a really really big deal. Like that's that's amazing to them that somebody would come out and they make beautiful games. Like the bun- there were there were a bunch of games I saw in Ireland that would would deserve to get much more attention. Um, and that's sort of where I can jump in um, and help out. Is there anywhere you've gone where it's actually been too early? Like, is there a game development community somewhere that's like worshiping the members of Flambeer as a pantheon of gods right now? <laughs> it's not. It's not Flambeer. It's just the general indie scene. Okay. Like what, what is easy to forget is that what we consider normal for a lot of places is like absurd. To a lot right. of places. I mean, uh, there's the story of Mahdi, Mahdi Bahrami, who is an Iranian game developer who studies in the Netherlands. Um, and talking to him is so, it's so, it's upsetting because this guy makes beautiful games. He made uh, Farsh, which is a game about rolling out carpets, which is, you know, it sounds funny to us as, as Western people, um, but me as, as half Egyptian, like, I understand why that is a big deal in that game, because rolling carpets is a thing people do in the Arabic world. Like, that's mm-hmm. just, it's you do that every year. You have to roll out your carpet and clean it, because it's been on the floor of your, your house for a year. So it's time to roll it up and bring it outside. Like, that makes total sense to me. Um, but at GDC, it got, like, giggles. People were like, <laughs> and it's like, oh, well, that, that's like, I forgot that people here don't have that, don't have that cultural um, framework. Um, but he can't sell his games. Like, there's no way for Mahdi to sell his games directly because he's Iranian and there's an embargo. So right. he can't use PayPal. There's not even there's not even there's not even an option to select Iran on PayPal as your right. as your country of birth. Like, it just doesn't exist. He like as far as the world as far as the financial world is is concerned, like Mahdi does not exist. He can't sell to PayPal. Steam is probably like hard. Like that sort of thing is upsetting. 
Um, and there are so many, so many like little communities that deal with their own problem. Communities in uh, Southern America just don't have access to um, the larger platforms. Uh, middle Africa, if you're a game developer in Middle Africa, mobile is the best you have access to because all the other platforms just don't have a presence. Like, it's it's sort of upsetting um, to realize that there are all these beautiful games that just couldn't exist on their own and need a connection to the established um, to the established community to to be able to do anything at all, and they just don't know how to reach out. And it, it seems like you know a little bit what you're touching on is the fact that a lot of the discourse, a lot of when we share lessons in game development and game publishing, or you know talking to folks like myself in the press, it is very Western centric. And so a lot of the lessons and a lot of the discussion happens around enabling people uh, that are from those areas of the world uh, where they can participate in those systems. And it seems like something you've seen uh, a number of times throughout your travels is that there are a lot of people that fall through the cracks where none of this applies to them. And while, you know, Steam has things like being on the front page of Steam has been, you know, your shot at glory for a lot of folks, that's just not even an option for, you know, it, someone working out of Iran. It doesn't even exist. Like, that, that, is not, that is not a thing any company in the U.S. can do at the moment. You can't trade with Iran. Like, that's it. Um, the only way you can help you can help Mahdi is by donating on his website. Um, Where can people do that? I don't know. There's there's his website. Let me look that up real quick. Uh, and that doesn't even go directly to him. Like it's not even that. It's like people always offer like, oh, but you can go through a third party. It's mm-hmm. like yes, he could. But isn't that still completely messed up that he has to go through somebody else that will likely also want to take a cut or have to deal with like a lot? Of, why can't he just be him? Right. Games. Isn't that why we're independents? Is it like it's because we have something personal to say and we want to deal with with all of that? We want to deal with making the game. We want to deal with selling the game. We want to deal with marketing the game. We want like we wanted. We want this to be our own thing. And it's just like nope, no, you can't do that. Um, and it's just it's so great to see how game how the game development culture um, how that evolves differently in different territories. Like it's it's exciting to see. Did you know that in most of th- southern uh, Africa, computers are not a big deal. Like they just skipped the computer age; they went straight to the smartphone age. <laughs> really? Yeah. Like a lot just of like pure, like pure cost. Like it just wasn't like it was cost prohibitive to participate in sort of the rise of computers in the eighties and nineties, and then smartphones were became... already a thing when okay that smartphones were already a thing when the technological sort of era. Um, um, happened um, there where, where people got rich enough to be able to oh, buy that sort of luxury. Huh. So they just completely skipped that in large parts. Um, and um, if, you, if, if they buy mobile games, what they do is they go to the market with their phone and they go to somebody with a computer and then that person with the computer hooks up the phone and loads up a bunch of games and apps and then gives back the phone. And they wow. pay for that. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Is that how that works here? And it's like, yeah. Like, uh, 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 okay. <laughs> that's just the system. You're yeah, saying if people want to buy, you know, Nuclear Throne, they should just come to Vlambeer with stacks full of cash <laughs> and just hand Lots it over. Of cash. Yeah. No, no, but that's it. Like, just seeing all the different worlds and, and different communities and how they deal with their local problems is... Um, it feels like I can help them, but more than that, it feels like... I learn a lot about how to help 
um, how to help out and where we can help out. And that enables me to sort of talk to um, talk to the larger platforms or, or payment processors or, or initiatives um, that could help out. And that's just, it makes, it feels nice to be able to do something for, um, for people that are normally just sort of forgotten. Um, and not even by anybody's, like, it's not anybody's mistake to forget about that. They forget about these people. They're just invisible to, to most of us. And that's, that's reasonable. I think, um, you can't expect people to be aware of the entire world. Um, but we can do better, I think as a medium. So let's try and do better. Well, it seems like games are specifically sort of inclined to be better you know, like they're just everything. Everything is so digital, internet centric in games, and we have grown up with that culture. That games and and game developers, you know, game fans are sort of uniquely. I don't know. It feels uniquely situated where they would want to embrace stuff like that in a way that you know maybe it's just because I don't know other mediums as well. But it feels like games are more inclined to be more inclusive in that nature. Uh, you know, their uh, game mechanics are a little more worldwide. Um, it, it feels uh, rather than you know what you see in film or books. I, I think the the biggest I think the biggest thing is that our medium grew up on the internet. I think that's a that's an interesting difference from other from other mediums. Like by the time games really broke through and became like a big big like act, like mainstream thing, the internet was like around the corner. So we're sort of used to having that almost globalized. Um, that globalized market or globalized um, audience. Um, I do think that because of that, it, it becomes easier to think that we are that inclusive, um, but we're, we're not quite there. Like, I think we're making huge progress on a number of, on a number of issues, especially in the later, in the later years. Um, like Sean Allen's talk at GDC and, and Zoe's talk at GDC were both amazing. Um, but but I mean just 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 the fact that for me it was such a big deal to see Arabic scripture and it wasn't even Arabic it was Farsi which is Persian right yeah. um, but it was it it shares like a majority of the alphabet just to see those those characters being used in a non antagonistic sense was <laughs> kind of a big deal like it's it doesn't happen often that I hear Arabic in video games and I'm not supposed to shoot at them <laughs> so that, that was kind of a big deal for me. <laughs> but it's but it, you know it also speaks to you know when we you know talk about subjects like this you know often we're you know speaking in terms of of, of gender or the the way games uh, approach uh, you know the the objectification of women and, and things of that nature like what you're speaking to is just a very small thing in one game and yet had an immensely uh, huge impact uh, on your on your perception of of that piece of media and I think that goes to show you know just how little some games or game you know culture needs to change to to really get a lot of people feeling like they're more a part of it yeah no absolutely i mean it's that funny thing if, if you know arabic and you look at video games it's the most hilarious thing um everybody speaks in um uh, a saudi arabian um accent um which is funny because that's it sort of feels to an egyptian as me an egyptian is as far as I know, the most spoken accent of Arabic. Uh, Saudi Arabian sort of feels like Shakespearean English. Um, and then a lot of games just don't manage to connect the letters together. 
while in Arabic you're supposed to connect most of the letters together. Um, and you get this crazy situation where if you had Arabs creating an English game in, in the same way, you would have Call of Duty where everybody speaks is Shakespearean, and then words have random amounts of spaces between every every letter. And that would be presented to you as this is exactly what the Western world is like. You just be like, huh? That's that's not quite that's not quite right. So at uh, best, it's like a loose approximation of something resembling reality, but nowhere nowhere near. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not. Usually, it's not even close. Um, yeah. Which is just it's just really really funny, um, but also sort of discouraging um, that even even some large multi million dollar games. Um, managed to mess that up so it's like huh that's that's kind of crazy yeah uh, but it's i mean those kind of things like that's sort of why i do all the travel is because i do want i do want all that i went to turkey a, a week two weeks ago and just being there in istanbul like such a such a um such a strong cultural city with all these different influences from around the world um just being there and, and understanding that there are going to be games that come from there, um, that just makes me really excited. Like just, and it's it's another thing I've seen is a lot of these communities are, have trouble with believing that they're allowed to be creative, right? Yeah. Because traditionally, technology in the in 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 especially like the the East and and Africa have been in service of the Western world. Um, have been, oh, so they have. They just have trouble wrapping their head around the idea of creative independence, just because yeah. they've, they've been so tethered to the Western world that they're used to being told, "Hey, this is what you're supposed to do," as opposed yeah, to this, "What do you want to do?" Less money than the employees here, but it's more money than you would earn otherwise. Right. That's what they. That's what they. Um, that's what they do, and and jumping from from being Dutch to being an independent game developer. Like we are in in the Netherlands, and I think in, in America as well, we're taught that creativity is an option, right? It's not. It's it's still. It will meet a lot of resistance from from uh, people in general. Like family will often go like, "But you could do something useful with your life," and you know, that's <laughs> yeah. just, go be a lawyer. Yeah. Why 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 are you not a, a rocket scientist? Um, like that sort of thing. Like that that like that's you have the option here, even though you have obstacles it it is always something that you know is a thing you can do um while being creative in technology um out there is so much there are so many more obstacles to that what are um i mean obviously you've been traveling a lot and you've gone to a lot of different places but like what are some of the communities you've been able to you know get in touch with and and speak to that you've like you see the most potential in like where do you where do you feel like the next like big international creative booms are going to come from in gaming um, I, I think I think um, uh, the communities in Norway and Berlin are are really interesting at the moment. Um, Berlin is really really getting close to to um, gain, gaining a critical mass. They have events, uh, a maze maze festival takes place there, um, and usually events are a, a, a signifier of a community maturing to the point where they do international outreach, um, especially larger events that attract international speakers. Um, I think I think Norway. I I just hear more and more games coming from Norway, so that's that's exciting. Um, I I have good hopes for Turkey. 
Um, I think I think they will get there. The people all seemed really passionate. Um, and the, the thing I ended up talking about is pitching your game. Uh, because apparently nobody there really knew how to to pitch a game. Right. Uh, so that was the thing I focused on there. Um, the the community in South Africa, uh, I was in Johannesburg, seems to... They're a really tight community. They're kind of isolated from the rest of the world. So, um, so it's interesting to... Um, to see how they deal with that and how strong of a community they've formed in the in the country itself and in the region itself. Um, and with uh, with Broforce and Desktop Dungeons happening there, uh, I, I I can see that growing really really rapidly now. They've got their little they've got their their sort of breakthrough uh, with mm-hmm. with those two games. And you know if you have heroes in a community, they get the they get the opportunity to to use that for good, for helping others out. And I think I think the Broforce and Desktop Dungeon um, teams are really, really community oriented. So um, I have really good hopes for for there as well. Cool. So the the game that Vlambeer is working on right now, Nuclear Throne, one of the one of the things that you talked about at GDC that I thought was I didn't get a chance to, to watch your your entire talk, but I the summation of it was talking basically about performative game development because yeah. a lot of what Lambier is doing and Double Fine is doing, you know, with Amnesia Fortnite, um, is is showcasing uh, whether through a documentary documentarian form or through live streaming of actual you know sort of minute to minute development is the game creation process which. It sounds like what you were touching on in in your in your talk was that, while yes, it is sort of live streaming the development process. It really isn't, in a way, because by by being on camera, by by doing knowing that there is uh, other people out there, in some way, it's a little bit performative. I'm curious if you could expand on what you mean by that. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean you can't be on a on a camera and be non-performative. If you just if we, if we would. So for Nuclear Throne, what we do every Tuesday and Thursday, we live stream our development. And we do that basically like this. There's a camera aimed on our, on our face. Um, we have headphones in and we make games while showing people what's on the screen. Um, but there's still that, that aspect of, you know, you're talking to the people in the chat and you're talking about what you're doing and that's not how you normally develop games. Um, you don't really talk to yourself. Some people talk to a rubber duck. Uh, that's the thing developers actually do. <laughs> uh, we call that rubber duck debugging. It's actually truly a thing. Nobody <laughs> ever believes that, but it's true. Like it's a common trick in developer community to have an inanimate object and preferably a, a rubber duck that you can talk to when you run into a bug and you just explain to the duck what the bug is. And then usually trying to explain it to the duck helps you figure out what the problem is. Like I'm not kidding. Okay, this is 100. I, I mean, I guess that's I guess that's similar to like when I you know write an, an article that I'm very uh, cautious about the wording in. You know, I'll you know I will literally read it out loud to myself to try and catch language that's awkward or language that you know sounded great in my head but doesn't work when actually spoken. And it's you know there yeah. is something to explaining and talking stuff out loud. Because you can kind of get it all bundled up in your head a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. No. It's 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 a really really um, it's it's just one of those things. But there are so 
there are so many um i think i think the 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 thing is you can't really be on a camera uh without being aware you're on a camera unless you're like hiding hiding cameras and we're not hiding cameras in our own studio um that would be weird um so you always perform a bit i think like you always want to make the show entertaining or interesting um and i guess i guess that's sort of that's sort of um, the performative aspect of it is just like we know that our game is fun to develop. We have fun developing it. It's a really content-heavy game. We add a lot of we add a lot of um, weapons and characters and enemies to it all the time, and that that always works um, really well on camera because you can just go like, okay, well, how about um, thunder shotgun, and we just add that. <laughs> so. I think the reason we're doing this, though, is because we believe that a lot of people seem to think that game development is this almost, you know, we we as developers accidentally ended up creating a myth around game development, right? It is It is what people think of as game development is not even close to development. Um, it's that thing where every time Unity posts that you can now export to a new platform, that people assume that building a play- PC game for PlayStation just means switching the, the dropdown from PC to PlayStation and then hitting build and then sending it to PlayStation and then having it release <laughs> on, the, on the store. Right. Maybe there's no paperwork. Fit. There's yeah, no QA. There's no cert. There's no. <laughs> you just it's send it. Magic. I mean, the game works because it's Unity. So hey, done. Um, and and I think it's important that we sort of deconstruct that myth. I think I think it's not only good because it allows people to understand how games are made and they care. Like people care about video games. Like people that play video games tend to care about video games. So. We want to show them how the decisions that power a game are made, how what kind of work goes into that, and it's it's also the um, the, the for example physics engines. We were working on Nuclear Throne and we were adding a new weapon, and there was this there was somebody in the chat and they said um, they said okay can you add like this is a projectile and we're like yeah we can add that as a projectile so we added that projectile um, and then we fired it as an example once. And then it went through the walls, and we were like, "Oh, we forgot to we forgot to make collision." So we started <laughs> coding the collision, and then people in the chat were just like, "You have to actually code that you that you don't just call it bullet and it works." Doesn't your physics engine handle that? And we're like, "We don't have a physics engine in this game. Uh, that's just we didn't we we don't need it because we barely have physics. Like things just have to touch each other, and then things happen." Um, so we didn't offer a physics engine and then having to explain that you actually have to code collision yourself was overwhelming (laughs) for a lot of people. So the, just that, just that, you know, just realizing that there is such a big gap between what people think game development is like and what people think releasing a game on console is like and being, being there ourselves and seeing how big that gap is just made us feel like we should try and and demystify it so that's why i mean it that's why we're that's why we're showing this and that's 
And I think it's important not only to show people what making games is like, but also to show them that it is a thing you can do. Like, just seeing people do something demystifies something in such a way that you go like, oh, wait, I could, I could do I could do that. It's a lot of work, but I could do that. Rather than have people go like, video games, let's download Unity. Okay, where is the make game button? Where do I, where do I <laughs> enable first-person shooter? And I, I want to make a platformer. All right, click the platformer button, yeah. and good. Super Meat Boy 2. And then See, you, you use yeah, the art drop-down. The then you use the voice commands, and you go like, I want a game like Super Meat Boy uh, meets a shooter and put me in the credits, and then Unity does that for you. Like, that's not the way it goes. And people get demotivated when they suddenly realize it's a lot of work. Well, if you can tell people, like, making games is a lot of work, but holy shit, it can be rewarding. Um, at that point, it becomes a, a lot easier to get into making games. And I think that's sort of what we hope uh, to achieve with it. I feel like you guys have also, you know, you especially have done a lot to sort of demystify some of the, the you know, some of the mental work that goes into it. Uh, there was a piece that you wrote that was published on Kotaku where you talked about the, the development process behind Left Rousers and just sort of how you felt once that game, uh, you know, finally came out. Can you, can you talk a little bit about just like what that piece was about? Yeah. Um, so Left Rousers is our 2D dogfighting game. It released a few a few weeks ago for PC and Mac and Linux and PlayStation 3 and Vita. And... We made a mistake. Um, basically, we promised that it would release on all platforms uh, simultaneously. And for PC, Mac, and Linux, that's that's the same. That's the same thing. You you make the game, you make sure it works, um, and you send it to Steam. It's all the same platform. But we had never really worked with PlayStation before. Right. And um, it turns out that releasing a game on console is, whew, um, <laughs> <laughs> wow, uh, we did not expect that. Just uh, certification is overwhelming. Um, it's it's just there are hundreds of tiny rules that you never you know the start screen in a video game yeah. if you're on a console and you have to press start. Yeah. You know why that is there? I, I no, just but you're gonna that... you're gonna tell us. It is there because developers have to figure out what controller the player is holding. You're not allowed to make all the all the controllers do the same thing in a menu. You have to figure out which one the player is holding, because for the rest of the game, that'll be the player controller for that for right that person. Um, that's a certification uh, thing. Like you have to do that. You know why you have that little thing at the start of most first-person games nowadays, where at the start of a, of a game you have to say how wide and how um, high your screen is? It's a way to get around another certification thing. You're not allowed to have games within... Uh, you're not allowed to have HUD interface in the outer 10% of your screen. Really? Unless you have figured out how big the user screen is. Um, so because people want HUD to be as far out in the site, nowadays because that's more immersive um instead of not being allowed to put that out there you ask the the user to define their screen and then you don't have to do that that's well, the then all, all these thing. i mean and then all these little you know your certification things that you're talking about also differ on you know on a per region basis so yes. it's not even just that there are universal platform rules that you have to follow then there are region specific rules 
that you have to follow so that you know like octodad recently just went through you know cert on on playstation and you know they were talking i think you know publicly on twitter about like cool we're through u.s cert (laughs) now we need to get through europe cert and it's like wait what wait that's not just like a switch that gets pulled all at once you have to go through separate channels yep it's different per region it's different per per um platform on some platforms, you're supposed to call buttons buttons. On other platforms, you're supposed to call buttons keys. Um, like the, the, the way you call trigger or bumper is different. Um, like the, the, there are so many really specific things. We had a, we had a QA fail on lift browsers because um, the, the interface in the game is in the same seven colors as the rest of the game. And people were worried that that would cause a cert fail because the colors of the buttons are supposed to be the colors of the buttons right. on the controller. Uh... And I was not going to add like 256 colors to my <laughs> game because buttons. Um, so what happened is Luftrausers got super, super delayed. Like super delayed. I mean, it's supposed to come out like several years ago, I feel yes, like. Yes, it was, it was the most anticipated indie game of 2012, according to a review <laughs> in 2014. Um, <laughs> what, what happened is we promised to launch simultaneously. So we were sitting on perfectly good um, PC, Mac, and Linux builds ready to launch. And Luftrausers was weird because it was the last game we started development on while we were really, really angry about Ridiculous Fishing. Uh, Ridiculous Fishing got cloned and um, you know we we were upset because here was this other company that basically stole our game idea and they were making a million dollars in no time. We were like well but 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 and they were getting all good review scores and people were saying it was such an original idea and we we're like oh, come on. And to like, be clear the, the this what you're you're talking about the game came out before you had finished you got you know the updated version that you guys were going to put yeah. out. So it's not even, you know, looking at a game like Threes, you know, that a lot of folks have been talking about in this context. That was a game, you know, also like Cannibal that comes out and then there are games built and, and largely derivative of it after release. But this happened to you guys before, before you were release. even able to put it out. Yep, exactly. So we, they earned a million dollars, got all the credits for the idea, for the game and for the execution. And we were sitting on a half-completed game and we got really, really depressed uh, we didn't work on on anything for six or seven months, which was crazy because we made like fourteen games before that happened in like two and a half years. We like making games and we like making games fast, and 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 we don't really spend all that much time on on um, on exploring a project beyond sort of what we feel is the goal of the project. Like we always have a really specific thing we want to try and prove, and we prove that. That's what we do. Um, and it, it was just sort of, with Luftrausers, we started that game when we were upset because obviously the game had been cloned, they had made a million dollars, we were not doing anything, and we were depressed that we were depressed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, it was just, it was an awful time. We almost quit the company twice or, or thrice. We just said, well, you know, this is, it's just not really worth it. And then um, at GDC, JW got the idea that we would do a follow-up to our dogfighting game. Um, and it, it we made a tiny Flash game called Luftrauser, so we decided to work on Luftrausers. And um, it, it only 
it only dawned on me after release of, of Lufthrausers that I didn't really feel a connection with the game anymore. Um, because when we started Lufthrausers, we were angry. And then it took us two years to get to the point where we were ready to release uh, Lufthrausers. And by that time, Ridiculous Fishing had come out. It had done really well. It won a Game of the Year award. We were, we were like at the BAFTAs, like the, the, like Hollywood, whatever things. It was completely crazy. Everything was going really, really well. We were, we were financially stable again. We were working on Nuclear Throne, which was, is by far my favorite project that we've ever worked on. Um, so everything was, was great. Like we were having fun and then comes this game and I look at it and it's angry. Like Lufthrausers feels angry. It's just, it's upset. It forces you to fight. It has a combo counter that depletes. And, and like, that would not, like, I would never do that right now. Like, I would never put a combo thing in there that depletes because it just, it's, it's arbitrary and it's, it's upset. It's like, it wants you to kill things faster. It, it forces you to destroy things all the time. And that's just not really what our games are to me. Like, they're comfortable games. Like, yeah, you, you have to, like, you know, shoot things. Uh, we made a game about fishing with machine guns. There's there's a lot of shooting in our games, um, but it's like sort of comfortable. Like it's nice. It's like friendly. It's it's playful. It's playful. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and Lufthrausers isn't. Lufthrausers is just really really angry, um, and I never realized that until we we were about to release the game, and I suddenly had to do interviews, and and talk about the game, and it I I didn't feel it anymore like it, i was not angry anymore and it's really hard like i said we do this because we our games we try to say something with our games and what this game was saying uh i i didn't agree with anymore um and somebody said and that was the thing that sort of pulled me through that somebody said that i should just think of it as um as an album from a band and they had a you know they had a bad period, and uh, they made a they made a blue album. Yeah, and, and that's kind of what Lufthrausers is. So, I was like, it was just that makes sense. It was just interesting to read that perspective because you know when you watch a lot of postmortems or hear people talk about like you know games from like the AAA space, like you don't often hear the creators of those games talk about their mentality when they were working on it or, you know, like the depression they were going through, like, you know, when they were making an Assassin's Creed game or something. But the level of personalization that that people in the independent scene tend to attach to their their works, you know, you get these different perspectives like, yeah, this is a game that, you know, we made at a very specific time. We had this very specific mentality. I don't think it represents us anymore. I'm still proud of the work, but here's all the different reasons why this doesn't fit into the scope of what we like to do now. Yeah. And it's just interesting to hear that perspective because you, you don't get a lot of that kind of transparency when people talk about the projects they make in the game industry. It's you're getting more and more of that now, but you know, that kind of specificity doesn't usually come to come to light. And you know what? I don't think most people think about would look at Lufthrausers necessarily and go, oh, there's a lot of emotional attachment to this action game. Sure. You know, to, take, to take nothing away from everything you just expressed, but that's just we aren't maybe because, as Alex alluded to, you know, a lot of folks don't necessarily talk about this side of it. Alexander Bruce did a lot of discussion about this yeah, at GDC this year. Um, but, you know, it's you know, something that, you know, you're 
uh, illuminating, you know, talking about this is that there are still deep emotional attachments to design decisions, even for games that on the surface seem like, no, I just really like how the things blew up and how the, the combo meter felt, you know, when you yeah. played the game. And there's a lot more to it. I think it is important to realize that video games are a really interesting medium because nothing is there without intent, in a way. Um, right. Like, it, it is... It, when you make a movie, right, you're still dealing with the real world quite often, right? If you make a shot, there's going to be certain light circumstances that you just don't really have control about over. And you just like how they look, and you use that shot. Like... If we make a game, we start from scratch. Like the first thing you see when you make a game is is usually a, a blue screen with nothing, or a screen with nothing, and then you go from there. So every little decision in a game um, has a creator behind it. Even the, the the direction and the 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 effects of gravity, like just just something that is completely normal in, in the real world. Like we have to design that. Um, right. We have to tweak that and make that fit the game. And sometimes we set that to ridiculous values, um, <laughs> like a lot of a lot of um, completely normal feeling first-person shooters have like five times the gravity of Earth to make jumping feel good, and it's just kind of crazy. But we we still have to make those numbers and tweak them and go for a certain feeling or certain like thing, and that's not just in indie. That's in everything. That's in AAA. That's in indie. That's in that's everywhere. Like every decision in a game is made by someone somewhere along along the pipeline of creating it. Um, but it's hard to see the creators behind the game. I think as a gamer, it's it's just you know it's it's hard because here's this thing and it looks like a game and it plays like a game and it's it's a game. But that the fact that there's a creator behind the game, we're not quite we're not quite to the point where people fully understand what that means. And that means that every game, like every creator, has emotional attachment to what they create by default because otherwise things just wouldn't be there nobody sits nobody sits down and goes well gravity is going to be 9.1 because that's uh, 9.8 because that's what you know that's what it is and it's just like what what it's like you go you go with gravity and you're like huh this feels like slightly too floaty and you're like i need it to feel a bit more like you know you jump and then you land and it's like okay so more more gravity and it's like yeah but they try again and it's like because now the gravity is too high, so you add like upwards force to the character. You just keep tweaking that until it feels right. So there's like it it feels right. Design is not science. Like there's no there's no there's no science to design. It's just trying and trying and trying and trying until it feels right. And I sure like you you balance like statistics and stuff. Like the Halo pistol story is really interesting in that because they perfectly scientifically balanced everything and then they went like ah the pistol isn't powerful enough let's just add some damage to the pistol and that's why it's a super <laughs> weapon that it is in Halo um, but you know that that last minute decision the thing that made the Halo pistol was the feeling of a designer like everything has a feeling to it um, I think that is also why we, we show Nuclear Throne we want to show that creators are people um, I think a lot of people the, the, like go, going by the the chat and the comments on the video we did at the GDC, um, at the GSC, GDC Giant Bomb thing, I think a lot of people here in the chat understand that. But in general, um, if you go on the internet, it is, you know, most people don't understand that creators are people and that choices in games are choices. 
All right. Well, as we head towards uh, the end of our, our hour with you, Rami, I want to bring in some some questions from folks uh, that have been dropping them uh, into our chat. Uh, one from Ass in Ass, because of course that's what his name is. Uh, Perfect kickoff. He, he, <laughs> but as a good question, uh, will Vlambeer always be making arcadeish games, uh, or would you ever consider something with more of a narrative focus? We do. We do not only make. Um, arcade games. Uh, we've actually made a bunch of games that aren't arcadey. It's just that most people don't know them because they tend to be jam games. Uh, we did Glitch Hiker, which was a little game that died. It was a game that had a life, and um, as people played it, it got more sick and then eventually died. Uh, <laughs> it's just how does, it's, it, how does a game die? It's unplayable. Like you can't, you can't, you can't play it anymore. It's just gone. You can download it, I think, from the website, but. So- so the mechanics actually get sicker and worse as you go along. Yeah, basically the game the game started to glitch and fail, and the audio would skip, and the gra- uh, the graphics would would glitch, um, and then eventually when the the amount of lives the game had left reached uh, zero, it it just died, um, which wow. is really weird. I have a game that I cannot play anymore. Like <laughs> I, I made that, and it's I I can watch I can watch a video about it. There's there's two videos of Glitch Arc on the internet, and that's literally all that's left of it. Huh. Um, and we did Yeti Hunter, which was a game that we created when we watched this documentary about a guy that claimed to have seen a Yeti, and the documentary was sort of disrespectful, so we made a game about hunting a Yeti, uh, but there is no Yeti in the game. Um, so people tried hunting the Yeti for hours, and then... Um, they, everybody caught on to the joke that there is no Yeti, so they started they started saying, uh, they started responding to that on Twitter, and then somebody did find the Yeti, because there was a Yeti, but it was just really, really rare. They posted a <laughs> screenshot on Twitter, and nobody believed them. So we recreated the feeling from the documentary for somebody um, through a game, and we thought that was really, really cool. So we do, we do crazy little experiments, um, but the games that people know us for tend to be um, the Vlambeer feel, you know, arcade, um, impactful, like feels nice or interesting or novel. We try and make interesting games. Like I, I guess, interesting arcade games is is sort of what we set out to do is to prove that there's still a lot of things to explore in arcade. Uh, you uh, made an, an Adventure Time game too as part of that jam stuff, right? Uh, that's JW actually. That's just flat oh, okay. out JW. Uh, that was for um, Adventure Time jam. It was a fun okay. game though. It's called Adventure Minute. Um, I, I specifically keep that outside of Lambert because I have no clue what the right situation with that is. Right, <laughs> right. So I was like, that is not Lambert. If you want to sue somebody, go for that guy. I, <laughs> I don't know about this. That's very responsible as the business person to that, just point your I finger have, at the other. I have no clue. Uh, JW is fully allowed to do side projects within Lambert, <laughs> and uh, I am not responsible for any side project he does. Uh, let's see. Uh, Wikitoops asks... Uh, and this is actually something that I spoke for like probably an hour with you and Mike Bithell of Thomas Was Alone and then just never quite got around to writing anything about it. But it would still be relevant uh, if, if, I, if I found the time. Um, he asked, uh, why, uh, why doesn't uh, Rami and Vlambia have more ports of his game uh, to Android? Technical, too many devices with different specs. So we, we talked about the whole idea of porting games for like an hour because there's sort of a lot to, to talk about there. But, you know, given that you guys did put out uh, Ridiculous Fishing on Android, you know, can you kind of speak generally to why that is a challenge? And you see a lot of developers 
making games mostly exclusively or at least first on iOS? Well, iOS, so the thing with iOS is iOS is a bit more... Um, it's actually interesting because free-to-play games tend to do it the other way around. But for, for premium games, launching on iOS is... Um, like, the people buy more games on iOS. They buy them... They buy them it's easier to buy stuff on iOS. Um, and iOS has smaller fragmentation, so you kind of know what devices you're making it for. Um, so, so it's it's a lot easier to go for iOS first, just because the the, um, the amount of things you need to uh, keep track of is is smaller, and the um, and because of that, the amount of support you need to do immediately after launch is smaller as well. Um, when we launched Ridiculous Fishing on iOS, we had 24 support emails in the first week, I think. Um, and on Android, we had 190 in the first hour, I think, because of people that just had problems with, with their device or it wouldn't work. There's an Android, there's literally an Android phone with a diagonal screen. Like, I don't even know how to deal with that. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you ridiculous fishing on a diagonal screen? Like, I don't know. Um, and then on top of that, and this is just a little specific thing. Um, as far as I know, uh, not all platforms take care of taxes. Um, I just found that out recently since we did ridiculous fishing. Uh, Google and Steam handle like most of the tax-related stuff, um, while while other platforms don't. Um, so that that was sort of a big addition to the workload as well on Android. There's just so much work that piles up on Android that I did not expect at all. Um, <laughs> even though it is a nice platform, like Ridiculous Fishing did well on Android. We're really happy with it, and we're really happy that everybody can play the game on Android now. But um, on iOS, it did it did much much better for much less effort, and I think that's what people kind of go for. Is like, well, let's start with the big one and then work away from there. Let's see. Uh, we have another question from uh, Cyberfunk, uh, who asks, uh, "Will the recent criticism of Loof Rousers affect how you think about the design of future games?" I believe he's talking about the exchange uh, you had with uh, Rob Dubbin and Elizabeth Simmons about uh, the aesthetic in Loof Rousers, and you wrote a big essay uh, up on uh, Vlambeer's blog talking about uh, the design process of Loose Rousers and, and why you guys chose the aesthetic that you did. So you know, given all of that, does, you know, I think what, you know, Cyberfunk's getting to is, does that, what does that make you think about in the future in terms of how you design uh, your games and maybe how you explain them to the public? I mean, I think, I think the, the, the interesting thing about Loose Rousers is that there was, there was, for some people, there was a difference there was a, a large gap between what we intended to create and what people interpreted it as. Um, and we left um, what we call an affordance in the game for people to interpret it in a certain way, right? Like people could interpret it um, um, relatively um, easily as being a game about Nazis, which was um, which was totally not what we intended. Like there is it's a game about a certain certain time period between 1910 and 1980 in which intelligent agencies had enough capacity to realize that other countries were working on stuff but not enough to say what they were working on so intelligence agencies were talking all these crazy crazy um all, were writing all these documents about these crazy weapons underwater airplanes and and weaponized dolphins and just just like amazingly fantastic super weapons that just could never exist with the technology they had now, but they didn't know that back then. 
And we wanted to make a game in which you controlled one of those super weapons, but for that to make sense narratively, we had to place you on the side of a country that we would spy on. Um, so, so we took like a combination of all the big antagonists from that time frame and sort of meshed that into a fictional new enemy that, you know, somewhere between the Second World War and the Cold War. Um, and we never really thought... It, it was sort of unexpected that people would lock it down to a single single time frame and that interpretation is valid right like that's the thing that's the thing like we create something but we have to accept that sometimes people read between the lines if you don't write there and we never excluded the possibility that they could be nazis um and i guess that was sort of that is sort of what we learned is if you don't write between the lines um where you don't write is a place where other people can write and if there is something that you know, is is hurtful um, or way beyond your intent or something you would absolutely not do um, that you have to write, you have to write between the lines there. Um, I don't think it changes much about how we design games, though. I think Lufthrausis was genuine. Um, I think it we created what we intended to create and the interpretation was, the interpretation that um, Dobbins and Simmons hat was different from what we wanted to make, um, but I don't think I don't think that will impact our design process in any in any way. Um, we made a genuine game, and we apologized for the interpretation that people had. We are truly sorry that we hurt people. Like that was that was I we didn't want to do that, um, but we did. And we're sorry for that. But I still believe Lufthrausers is genuine about what it is. And I think that is, for me, that is important. So, yeah. Cool. It's Alex, a- you, uh, you you got anything else on, on your end? That pretty much covers my what I got. Awesome. Uh, let's double check and make sure... No, they're good. Uh, people pointing out plenty of links now to uh, weaponized dolphins uh, to, <laughs> to to point out that don't worry, the dream is not dead. Uh, the Ukrainians had them before the yeah, Russians that's right. came that in. Was, yeah, that was I was saying, yeah, Crimea. No, no, and actually there was there was um, a big story last week or two weeks ago about airplanes launching from submarines. That was apparently actually a thing. Um, like the, the the Chinese apparently actually built those. So, uh, wow. Like <laughs> that was not that we we thought that it was, um, we thought that we came up with that, but apparently no, that is totally a thing people do. They launch airplanes from submarines. Uh, I like this one from uh, Faux Ben. Uh, can Rami make sure we get a thunderstorm gun in Nuclear Throne? Not a lightning gun, but a gun that literally shoots thunderstorms. Uh, we can talk. We can try it. We can see what happens. I mean, that's that's the fun. That's the fun thing about Nuclear Throne is we can just try things, and if they don't work, we just kill them again. Like that's iteration is such a fun part of, of Nuclear Throne. We just go like, how about this? And then we try it, and we go like, nah, that's shit, and we kill it. Um, or we go, yeah, that's cool, and we keep it. Like it's just a really, really, um, it's a really fun project to work on. So I'll tell JW to try that. 
<laughs> just Perfect. off the top just off the top of your head do you know what the gravity level would have to be the what would you have to program for a thunderstorm gun uh so nuclear throne doesn't actually have gravity so that's oh, okay just none just okay zero none gravity none gravity it's okay. uh, all of our mutants <laughs> are stuck in an unstable world without gravity makes total sense terrific uh, you guys actually you sent me a link to it on, on Skype as it was it was launching, but on on April Fools on April first, you guys actually launched a first person uh, nuclear throne. Which when you sent me the link, I was like, oh, haha, you you know made a video and people can click it. But instead, no, you actually uploaded a build to Steam for people who are already in early access for Nuclear Throne for them to play a first person nuclear throne. Yeah. I mean, we like doing we like doing that for for our first April Fools ever. We uh, we uploaded a build of Super Crate Box in which you got points for killing enemies because that's exactly the opposite of what the design of Super Crate Box is. And people were right. complaining like, why don't I get points for killing enemies? And we're like, well, you know what? We'll just make a build, upload it, and then everybody was complaining that the game wasn't fun. And we're like, exactly. That's the point. Like, it isn't fun if you get if you get points. Uh, <laughs> For, for killing things. That's exactly the opposite of the of the design. And for Nuclear Throne, we just thought... Nuclear Throne actually is... Um, we made a first-person shooter called Gun Gods. And uh, that was originally intended to be uh, a top-down roguelike. But we were terrible at making a top-down roguelike back then. Um, so we killed that and we turned it into a first-person FPS about gang- gangster <laughs> hip-hop on Venus. Um and yes, go on. Because why not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So when we came back to the top-down roguelike idea, we kind of wanted to go full circle back to Gun God. So there is there is a Gun Gods level in uh, Nuclear Throne that you can get to, and um, and we wanted to see that level as a first-person level. So we sort of used the rendering the rendering engine from from Gun Gods and put that in Nuclear Throne, and then the entire game was first-person. So we're like, well. This is cool. Let's upload this. And <laughs> it was just so amazing to see the game as a first person. It totally doesn't work, but it does work. <laughs> well, it's, it's just amazing because for so many jokes along that, it'd be one thing for it to release a video, but for you guys to actually release the build for people to screw around with, you know, shows a level of commitment to the joke that I really appreciate. It's if you're gonna do video games, it's about interaction, right? Like I don't want to like a video about a video game. It's just it's not quite there. If we're going to make a game, if we're going to make a joke and we're video game developers, at least make the joke a game. That's what I, I think. I feel like that's fair. Agreed. Uh, Alex, uh, what are you what are you up to this week? What do you got going on on the site? I, I really enjoyed your the acronym for your FTL video that you put up. Thank you, thank you. I, I spent a very long time working on that. Uh, I don't really know. I'm I'm going to start looking at some uh, some review stuff here. I don't know. I might actually write something for trials. We'll see. Um, but other than that, just kind of starting to get my ducks in a row for things coming up here. What do you got coming up? I'm I'm going to be on the radio later this week. I didn't like know the, the radio radio the radio radio. Okay. I have to, I have to go to Navy Pier in Chicago to some studio. The uh, Chicago Sun-Times, uh, one of the more popular newspapers out here, is temporarily turning off uh, comments on their website uh, as part of an experiment. And so they wanted someone to come in to talk about stuff like that. And so given some of the stuff that I've done recently, like, hey, there's this dope in Chicago that thinks he knows something about this stuff. Let's bring him in and 
and see how that goes. So I'll, I'll, I don't know the details in front of me. It's called like the morning amp, you know, like AM. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm on mm-hmm. 8.30 AM uh, CDT, and uh, I'll post details on Twitter if people want to check it out. But I have to imagine it's stuff like that's on the internet these days. There's probably a way to listen. I was telling my mom, she's like, do I have to, do I have to go in my car? I was like, I don't. <laughs> Maybe? I don't know. She's like, I don't own a radio. It's like, most radio is on the internet these days. So I got going that on uh, on this week. Uh, I'm also going to be doing uh, a new uh, entry in Spookum Scoops. I figured I'd do that on Thursday uh, as well. So look for that on on Thursday night. We'll finish playing uh, the first uh, Blair Witch game. Uh, And I don't know if I can stomach the other ones, but we'll play some other horror games. And I'm considering... Uh, busting out the Oculus again and seeing uh, what's happened there uh, because my wife is gone all week, so I might as well turn the lights off and scare this shit out of myself by myself and see just kind of how that goes. But uh, Rami, how can people continue to, to keep tabs on what you're up to? Um, they can they can follow Flambeer, um on Twitter, twitter.com slash or on Facebook, which is also slash Flambeer. Um, they can follow us on the live streams uh, for Nuclear Throne um, on Tuesday and Thursday, 1 p.m. Uh, Central European time, which is early in your time, uh, to 5 p.m. Central European time, which is still early, but not quite as bad <laughs> in your time. Um, we, uh, we do the live chats every week, and we, upload, we update Nuclear Throne every Saturday. Um, and then every now and then I'll just drop by some Twitch channels where people are playing Nuclear Throne because, you know, it's it's fun to see people playing your game. Um, and Let's Play is just such an amazing part of the games industry. So I will often on the Flambeer um, Twitter just post where we're hanging out and whose stream we are. Um, and then just people can stay in touch there. Um, I have a personal blog at RamiIsmail.com and you can see where the hell I am at IsRamiInTheNetherlands.com. Oh, you know what? I should ask you before we let you go uh, that you know Twitch announced last week that you can now directly purchase Nuclear Throne through Twitch. Can you talk a little bit about how that sort of came about and how you feel about it? Um, it's it's interesting. So what happened? What what technically happened is we asked them if we could do that, and then we created a little system that allows people to subscribe to our chat, uh, to our to our Twitch stream at twitch.tv/flambeer, and then get a copy of the game for that. So technically, it's us selling the game through Twitch's tools and integration. Huh. Uh, but that does make it the very first game that you can buy on Twitch. Right. Um, but it's it's kind of interesting. Like the the deal that they have is specifically set up for subscribers. So the the uh, share is kind of weird. On on Steam, you get seventy percent. Um, on Humble, you get ninety percent, and on Twitch, you get sixty. Um, but we just wanted to try that. We, if we're if we're live streaming all of our development and showing people how games are made, um, we kind of didn't want to send people on a goose chase around the internet to buy the game. We just wanted them to be able to hit the subscribe button and then get get the game. Um, so it's been interesting. It's it's um, let's put it this way. It's not it's not going to be. It's not going to be a major part of the revenue on Nuclear Throne, but I think it's a really interesting experiment to sort of bring those two worlds together, like the Let's mm-hmm. Play slash YouTube, the video content creators, um, and the, the actual sales of video games. So I actually think that um, with all the discoverability issues we have, video content is such 
such a large part of how we can make sure that people get to see the games they like uh, by seeing other people play them. Um, it's just it's discoverability is such a big deal, and, and and video content creators have such a personality, and people know what they like. So, following the people that play games they like allows game creators to sort of reach really specific audiences if their game gets played by one of those people. Uh, but if we could combine that with a way of selling games, then I think that that would definitely solve one of the big problems we have right now. Um, which is just how do you get how do you get the games that you would like like how do you how how do you find games that are interesting um, and there are a lot of different sources where you can get um, a whole lot of games and let's play and and video content are an increasing part of that so I think that's interesting let's see where that goes I'm excited cool well Rami thanks so much for joining us today it's you know it's it's always a pleasure. It was uh, it was great having you on at, at GDC, and it was uh, fun doing this here. And uh, we'll definitely have to to make sure and uh, have you on again real soon. Thanks so much for having me. This was super fun. I'm gonna go back to making video games from my own <laughs> home and being slightly confused that I don't have a flight the next week. I don't know. You're in the Netherlands now. You're not in a hotel room. Are you gonna be no, able to program? It's so crazy. I am just in in a home that I know that I have been to often, and I have a kitchen that I can use so I can make my own food. I'm actually really excited to be making my own food. Um, in hotels, you just, like, it's frowned upon creating fire in hotels. Um, Generally. food. So this is one of the first times where I can actually just make something. Um, I'm kind of thinking of doing something crazy. So maybe, maybe I heard from somebody, I forgot where it was, but somebody said that I should try and cook meat in orange juice. So I'm going to try and do that. I, I, well, good luck with that high? one. <laughs> if, if I don't make it back to the next show, that might that might be the cause. Okay. Oh, by the awesome. way, for people talking about the wallpaper here, that wall <laughs> that wallpaper was is is my mother's wallpaper. And previous time, I was on a video show, she got so disappointed that everybody thought that the wallpaper was strange. Or, or weird so if people could please give my mom a compliment for her choice of wallpaper that would be so appreciated <laughs> because she's probably watching right now and she would be so sad if people made fun of her wallpaper again I think no I think it has consistently been really interesting wallpaper that's what people have been saying so I think no, I we're think so too. I think we're safe but Good. uh alright Alex I will I will speak to you again unfortunately fortunately I don't know I'll see where I settle by the end of the week <laughs> Yeah, thanks uh, a lot, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will Let's talk to show. you. I will talk to you on Friday. And uh, Rami, uh, I hope to speak again soon. And thanks again for coming on. Thanks so much for having me.